So the passage this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, 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 not Ohio, Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart, the new cart, with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, Obed the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark Sorry, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So, it's a difficult passage, but I think it's important that we take these head on. So let's do a quick recap. David has now made Jerusalem his political center. Right? He has made it his political center of Israel, a neutral site between Israel and Judah, as we talked about last week. 
Then the Philistines come, smelling that there may be an opportunity to catch Israel off guards, and they invade, or they set up their army. David goes out and defeats them. And now that this, the nation is somewhat secure, he now turns his attention to make Jerusalem the religious center of Israel. Okay? And what he is doing here is, well, you know what, before we do, let's just talk about the Ark. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is? We'll put a picture up on the screen. There's a reasonably decent facsimile. We don't know exactly. But here's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's basically a big gold box of rectangle shape. And the, that lid on the top of it is called the mercy seat. You ever hear them talk about the mercy seat? Well, it's the lid of the ark. And it was said that when God would show up, he was enthroned in between, so that they would say, in underneath those wings is where God would show up. So you now know why the psalmists say, in the shadow of your wings, we think it's under an eagle. Not really. They're thinking about this more often than not, that he's under the shadow of this. Is there any safer place than that? So in the ark, God tells them to store some things. So there's the tablets, the, uh, the leftover remaining bits of the tablets from um, the Ten Commandments. Aaron's staff is in there and uh, a jar of manna. So all this is there. And the ark was meant to symbolize, not meant to, it did symbolize God's presence with his people, that he wanted to be near them and this is the way he would be, that he would be in this, he would dwell on this mercy seat with them. So the history of the ark is interesting, right? They take it, for instance, let's go back, let's start with Joshua. Joshua takes it and he brings it across the Jordan and he sets it up and when they're in the Jordan, the waters heap up, you know the story, and they're able to cross into the promised land. So it's an, a new exodus. The waters part, new beginning. Then he takes it around Jericho and the walls crumble. So God's there. But then back when we did 1 Samuel, in the house of Eli, who's a high priest, everything goes wrong. Eli's sons, um, Hophni and Phinehas, decide to take the ark into a battle with them, and it's lost, and the Philistines take it. But the Philistines realize that having the ark in their land is a bad idea because God plagues them. They're, they're just, it's a menace to have God there with them. So they decide they're going to send it back to Israel, and then they send it not all the way into the heart of it necessarily, but they send it to this place. Baal Judah is what the, we call it here in 2 Samuel into the house of, Ab of Abinadab, sorry. So Abinadab is now the steward of the ark, and he hangs on to it, him and his two sons, Uzzah and Ohio. And it sits there from 1 Samuel 6 until now. Saul seems to have forgotten about the ark, because it doesn't show up ever again. And now David reaches back and decides, no, I have to have it with me. I'm bringing it with me. So Why? Why does it now? Why does he try to bring it back? What is this thing about Uzzah being killed? Isn't that a bit harsh of God? Why is Michael being such a stinker? You know, what's going on in this whole story? And as we look at it, I think what we're going to see is we're going to learn a lot about worship. It's no surprise there, maybe, but maybe it'll surprise you the depths of what this passage is saying. So we're going to learn three things. David's need, God's lesson, and our hope. Okay? And all of it touches us. So, let's begin with David's need. Why is he doing it? Why does he need to bring the ark? And there's essentially two reasons. There's other sort of bigger reasons, but there's two basic reasons. A political one and a personal one. So, the political one is he's doing exactly what ancient kings have always done. Ancient kings, whenever they become crowned, they do two things right away, right? The first thing is they try to make sure their people love them because a, a, a king is never more on shaky ground than when he first becomes king. 
So you want to make the people happy. And then you want to invite all of your local gods, whoever they might be, in to be to, into your, into your uh, city, into your palace to protect you and to show that your gods support the kingship. So it's a symbolic act. And David is doing something that kings have always done. And for instance, we have Asher Nazarpal. It's a big name. He's a, a Syrian king. He does the same thing. He invites, uh, in the 8th, 9th century BC, he invites all of his gods to come dwell in the city with him. And then he throws a big party. And here's what he has to say to his people. For 10 days, I gave them food. I gave them drink. So did I honor them and sent them back to their lands in peace. So that's one example. Another one is Sargon II. Not any way related to the first Sargon who came 2,000 years earlier. But he says this, same thing. He invites the gods and the people to live in Dur-Sharakin, which is his new capital. And he says, I did it amid jubilation and feasting and a feast of music. Sennacherib, who you all maybe know if you're a Christian, you've heard about him. He's in Isaiah and other parts of the Bible. He does the same thing, invites the gods to, to be there with him. And he says, I drenched the foreheads of the people of my land with wine and with mead. I sprinkled their hearts. So David is doing something the lot of kings would have done. He's, he's doing this very political thing, but he's also doing it because he needs to show that God is there with him. So this is a political thing, a very political one side. But there's a deeper reason for David doing this that is a more personal reason. And to understand it, you find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, which talks about this story but gives us more detail. And in it, David offers a big song in, in chapter 16 about why he's doing it and how happy he is that the ark has come to Jerusalem. And in that, he shows, I think, why he is so in need of having the ark with him. So in the song, he says things like, um, we need God's presence continually. He says, we need to have God with us all the time. He says, he, he needs God, the ark there because it rem he, to remember the deeds of God, the covenant with God, the grace of God that he chose this tiny little nation to be his. He's a, he also says, we need God there because we need to worship and tremble. We'll talk about that when we talk about Uzzah in a minute. So, and then he says, of course, lastly, in the, I think it's the last, last verse of, the, of his song, he says, we need the presence of God to ensure salvation and blessing. David, in a nutshell, saying what we all should be figuring out as Christians, without God, there is no hope for you. God, David realizes that his kingship, his life in general, has no hope of surviving and being in any way beneficial if God is not near him. And this is exactly what our problem is. God, think about the symbolism. The ark has been forgotten. It's set aside for all the time of Saul. And this is what we are. We find that we have God far from us as people. This is the claim of the Bible, that you're all sinners, we've all gone astray, and that he is far from us. And somehow, we've got to get near him. This is the goal. We must get close to God. He must draw near to us, we must draw near to him. But how? And that's the first, the first point is now quickly summed up. What's the need? God. We need God to be near us. The problem is that proves very difficult to get near to God. As you're going to see now, we turn our attention to what happens. So, Abinadab gives up the ark to David. And David uh, says, okay, we'll have your two sons lead it. So uh, uh, Uzzah is standing beside the ark on this cart. And Ahio is at the front guiding the oxen because you can't put a saddle on an ox. Right? You have to lead him. You can't just ride him. And this is going on. But then tragedy begins to strike, right? We, we know the story. The, ark, the ox stumbles. The ark looks like it's going to slip, presumably, off the cart. 
So Uzzah does the most natural thing in the world, right? The most instinctive thing. The ark comes down, and he puts his hand on it to steady it. And then God kills him. Now, it's pretty harsh, right? If you're a skeptic, as I was, this is, the, this is the Old Testament God I'm used to as a skeptic. This is the jerk God who will do this sort of thing. He just flares up. He's like a tempestuous toddler. He just gets so angry all the time. And I remember thinking, this is the God you claim is gracious and merciful? Come on. And you're, if you're thinking that, as a, even as Christians we may think that, if you're thinking it, you're actually in good company because David seems to think it. He says David gets angry because God did it. So even for a moment, David is like, what? Because think about this. Uzzah is there worshiping. They're all singing. He's part of this procession. He's, his heart is in the right place. This is what the skeptic, this is what modern Canada would say. His heart was in the right place. God, what are you doing? Yes, he, okay, he made a mistake. He shouldn't have touched it. But really? Going to kill him? Imagine how the level of worship is brought down at that moment. Imagine we're up here singing and one of the worship team just falls over dead. I'm not wishing that. I'm just saying. But can you imagine? It's like, whoa, things got real here. You know? It's, it's an incredible scene. So we have to answer the, ask the question, why? Why does God do it? How do we make sense of this scene? And I think this interaction with Uzzah and the ark shows us something about God and about ourselves. So let's, that's the, the second part about God's problem. How do we get near to this God? David even says it. How can I bring this ark to Jerusalem? This God is wild. I can't, I, I can't control him. What am I going to do? So, first, what does it tell us about God? Let me use an example. This past week, um, at my house, the kids do a lot of nice chores, and they, they do the dishes. And when they stack the clean dishes afterwards, it is a tower that is very precarious. Um, like I, and I pulled something out of the stack. It's like Jenga. It's like... And then, as I did that, a knife fell and almost took off a toe. But here, what did I do instinctively, which I think we all would do? A knife, if you're holding a knife or something and it falls, instinctively you, at least that's what I did, I jumped away from it. Um, why did I do that? Well, I did it because I understand that the knife is sharp. And if I had cut myself with that or if I'm chopping something and I cut myself with a knife, I wouldn't say, stupid knife. Because the knife is just being a knife. It's sharp. In fact, it can only be useful to me if it is sharp. I would blame me for mishandling the knife. I heard a pastor say as well, you know, if you drive your car into a wall, you don't blame the wall. The wall's just being a wall. You're the problem. And this is the point here, is that the knife and the wall and God dictate how they are to be related to. I don't get to go to the knife and say, I wish I could just grab you by the blade. The knife says... You can't. This is who I am. And so, God at this moment is, is asserting his nature. He's saying, I'm holy. And you can blame me, you can say you don't like it, but that doesn't change the fact that you can't relate to me just any way you want. I am holy, you are not. And it's a very harsh thing, but it is true. It's actually not harsh, I shouldn't say that. Because God as being holy means he can't abide anything that is unholy. Anything that is unholy will be burned up in his presence. The same way if you run into a wall or you decide to breathe underwater, you are going to pay the penalty. It's just the way it is. And then, but when we look at the law of God, these laws, because there's rules. This is how you're supposed to handle the Ark of the Covenant and how you're not supposed to. It'd be easy to say, boy, these laws are a burden. 
But they're not, because the law that says you don't grab a knife by its blade is not a burden to me. It helps me have a healthy relationship with the knife so that I don't die. I don't cut myself, but I am health, I'm, I'm okay. And the same thing is here with, with God. He says, there's all these laws, and if you see them as a burden, it's probably because you don't understand God, because you're seeing them as something they're not meant to be. The law of God is meant to say, here's how you relate to me. I want you to relate to me. That's what God is saying. I want you to know who I am. I want you to come near, but you have to do it on my terms because I'm sharp. I'm hard in certain spots, and you can't just run up to me any way you want. So there's rules, and there's rules about the, about the ark that are clearly being broken here. The first thing is, it's being pulled on a cart. The, and we'll put that picture back up of it. The ark was built very intentionally with rings on either side with poles going through it. It was supposed to be carried by Levites, by certain people on their shoulders. There's a certain way of transporting the ark, and it's not to be put on a cart. And you say, oh, it's just a cart, Carl, come on. Is that really a big deal? Is that really worth killing Uzzah about? Yes, for two reasons. We're going to talk about one in a minute, but here's the, uh, the first one. The first thing is this. If you go all the way back to 1 Samuel 6 and you find out what the Philistines did to bring the ark back from the Philistine territory into Israel, you find that they put the ark on a new cart. So, when we then hear for the first time again, since that first, that's the first time you hear the word new cart again since chapter 6, 1 Samuel, you're meant to make the connection and say, oh my goodness, they're relating to God the way the Philistines relate to God. And if God is saying, remember, if David is this new Joshua, remember last week, Joshua, they say, David, you're the one who led us out and brought us in, just like Joshua, just like Moses. If that's the case, this new exodus, this new promised land, this new time for Israel and for God's people cannot start with you relating to me like the Philistines relate to me. You have to understand how to relate and who I am. This is one of the reasons we take worship very seriously. Yes, there's freedom to sing God a new song. Yes, there's, I think, freedom to have instruments that are modern. But we also can't just say, just because I'm giving it to God, he must accept it. He is holy, you are not. Not all of our worship is acceptable to God just because it's sincerely given. Because I could sincerely give my wife a vacuum for Christmas. <laughs> I, could really, I could really think that's a good gift. And it wouldn't stop her from smiting me like Uzzah. <laughs> See, worship cannot be worship unless you relate to the person the way they want to be related to, the way they must be related to. So, that's what it tells us about God, but what does it tell us about Uzzah? Because we are him. Let's go back to the knife example when we drop a knife. The reason I, I don't grab onto a knife is because I give it a wide berth when it's falling because I realize that it can cut me. I don't have to think about it. But if it was a bottle of ketchup or a kid's toy or something else that fell, I'd probably reach out and try to grab it. Isn't that amazing? Instinctively, you know to not grab the knife but to grab the bottle of ketchup or whatever it is. So, what does it mean if I was to then, if a knife falls and I was to grab the knife by the blade? You know what it would mean? Even if it just for that instant, actually it's not, because anything that you do is instinctive is deep in your heart. That's why it comes out of you. In World War II, to determine who were spies, the British would take a small penknife and jab it into a man's thigh, because it wouldn't kill him, but if he yelled out, Achtung, he's German because he's not going to scream out in his second language. He's going to scream out in his first language. 
The instinct that comes out of Uzzah in that moment is to grab God. Why? Because he doesn't think God's dangerous. He doesn't think God is holy. Instinctively, he just grabs out. He doesn't think he's like the knife. He doesn't think it's, I just touch him. And I know we're saying, well, he meant well. Of course he meant well. We know he meant well, but that's not the point here at all. The point is, what is coming out of Israel at that moment? The instinct of Israel was to relate to God on their own terms. That's why they put him on a cart. That's why they weren't carrying it and lots of other things that go wrong here. And so God is responding to Uzzah, not because he's a tyrant. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, overwhelmingly, he tells us and he shows examples of him being slow to anger, abounding in grace, and so on, in steadfast love. So, in fact, think about this. The Uzzah story falls in the midst of whose story? David's. Is there any other character in the entire Bible where God has to exercise more patience, more grace than with David? So to say, oh no, this is the instinct of God is to be brutal, is misreading the scripture. If you're a skeptic and you think that, you're biased. You want God to be that way so you don't have to relate to him. You want God to be a tyrant so then you can be justified by not obeying him. But the fact is, that's not the God here. He is not doing this out of anger and because his honor is hurt. Think about this. If God is perfect and needs nothing from you, he's not offended when you don't worship him. Because you're not taking anything from God. You're taking something from you. That's why God gets angry. You, Israel, you, Uzzah, are the ones who will suffer, and I love you, and I won't let you go. So I'm going to strike you if I have to, to keep you as close to me as I can, because I promised I would. That's what he says. So, you know, let me say one more thing. The older I get, and I'm getting older, I assure you, the more I look at this and the story, the new, story in the New Testament about uh, Ananias and Sapphira, similar, right? They're struck dead when they don't give God the proceeds from selling their house. And um, the more I look at those stories, you know, it's, my first gut reaction used to be, my goodness, look at this God, so, so quick-tempered, why? The more I read it, the more I realize I'm not marveling at his justice, but at his grace. Why doesn't that happen to all of us? Because we are all Uzzah. All of us in our instinct is to touch the ark, to treat him as common. And so my marveling now is not, why would he do it to a couple? My question is, my goodness, why hasn't he done it to all of us? We all deserve it. And I think that might be a sign of not, ma not maturity that I'm stirring up or that we do, but that God brings in. He begins to show us that grace is dripping even through these moments in, in the passage. So that's the case. And that's the problem. We have this, right? We, we need God. David's shown us we need God. We have, if we're going to have life, we must be there. But we can't get near him because we're sinners. We all deserve what Uzzah got. So what's the hope here in this passage? So let's look at the passage, what it says. First, David gets it right. You'll notice even in Samuel here, it says, and then when he starts the second procession to bring it to Jerusalem, it says, as they carried the ark, he figured it out. David realized, okay, there's a way to handle this and a way not to. So he carries it. He offers sacrifices. It's unclear of whether he stops. If he stopped every six steps to sacrifice an ox, that's a long trip. But we're not sure. So either way, but there's sacrifices. There's singing. Everything seems to be going in the right direction here. And then he gets close to home, and his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, is looking out the window and watching. Now, distance matters. 
It's not by accident that David is in the midst of the worshipers and she is watching from a window. That distance is very important. So we're going to talk first about Michael and then about David. So why is she so far away? And I actually sympathize with Michael. And if you don't, you will hopefully after this. Michael is not justified in in disdaining and and despising David or anybody's worship. But she is possibly justified in being just a little bitter. Because she, well, one example is she's married to the enemy of her father. Okay? That's, that's, that's not great. Um, but more importantly, and us modern types maybe recognize it more, is do you see how she and, and many women in the ancient Near East were used as symbols? She's not a human being. She's reduced to a symbol, isn't she? Because when David and Saul need to be, uh, have peace, what does Saul do? Take my daughter. She will be a sign between us, David, that you won't betray me because now we're family. So Michael is given as a prize. She then, because David is off running away from her father, is sent and given in marriage to a man named Paltiel. And David, in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, asks for her back. Now, why does he ask for her back? He clearly doesn't really love her all that much, necessarily. It's because if I... First, it was wrong. I was, she was taken from me. She was promised to me. Second, if he is, has, is married to one of Saul's daughters, it means, hey, we're not that different. It'll appease the Saul-eyed kingdom or dynasty. All the Saul supporters will be comfortable. She's a tool again. And it looks like she actually was happily married to this other guy because when, he, when, when Ishbosheth goes and takes her away and brings her to David, it says that her husband follows behind her weeping the whole time. So is it possible that she actually loved her other husband and now she's just being dragged around as a symbol? So we have to at least be somewhat sympathetic with Michael. That being said, she allows her bitterness to infringe upon her worship, and that we have to be a little harder on, even with ourselves. Because look at what she says to David, right? She says, you know, look at you debasing yourself. Who was her father? She saw what a king is supposed to be like, right? But remember, her father, the king, Saul, didn't have the ark near her, near him. So his style of kingship was stately. I must keep my, my appearance my reputation must be of this untouchable king. And so, David, what you're doing as a commoner dancing around, it's belittling, it's small. And so, she is then told, well, listen to what she does, right? She worships her bitterness. This is, I think, the problem with, with Michael. You see, what you worship is what you give your time to, what you serve. And she, isn't it fun to be bitter? Isn't it good sometimes? Isn't it, this, I think, the problem? Remember, there's this old hymn that says, for thee all the, 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 the something of mercy, follies of sin I resign. And they've changed it. The new modern one has a different word. It's no longer follies. Uh, oh, no, no, it is follies. But uh, it, originally it was love. For thee all the love of sin I resign. And people change it to follies because they said, nobody loves sin. Hey, you do. You love it incredibly. You love it so much you don't want to give it up. And she likes to be bitter. She sits there, look at her outside the window watching. And if you serve, if your idol is your bitterness or even your hurt ego or your reputation, you're going to be rewarded by that idol. Whoever you worship will reward you. And your bitterness 
will reward you with that good feeling of, oh, I'm of stewing. Remember, have you ever not? I, I won't ask you, but raise hands, but I know you've done it. We, don't you just sometimes wish and plot out this fantasy of watching somebody who's hurt you come toppling down? You love to plot their demise. And I think she, and that's the, that's the benefit. That's the reward of worshiping your bitterness is you get that feeling. If you're, if you're worshiping your reputation, like I'm never going to debase myself to raise my hands in church. I'm never going to do that. If that's the case, you know what your reward is? People will think you're very proper and stately. That's your reward. But she shouldn't be allowing, this is, the, I think, the sign for us. We can't allow our baggage, and we all have it, to stop us from worshiping. We have to deal with the baggage. And David now shows us, I think, how to do that as we turn our attention now to David. She is very upset with David that he's made a fool of himself. But let me use another example. If I'm in a restaurant with one of my kids, preferably small ones, because it'd be weird doing this to a teenager. But if you've ever been around your kids or a grandkid or anybody's kid, and you start making faces at them, like, <laughs> you know, you say silly things, you're like, you know, you're dancing around, you debase yourself in front of this child. It would be weird then if somebody came to you and said, you know, I'm sitting at that table over there and I saw you. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know how stupid you look? You're supposed to be a pastor? Have some decorum? And this is how you behave in public? My answer would be very polite, I'm sure. And it would be... <laughs> my answer would probably be something like, yeah, I know it probably looks stupid to you, but it wasn't meant for you. You're not the audience of this. It's this child. I'm trying to please them. And so, because they're the audience and not you... You, should be, you shouldn't accept it. It's not meant for you. It's like getting a letter that's mailed to somebody else. It's not for you. And so when Michael says, look at you debasing yourself in front of all these people, she doesn't understand, and David is clever. In this chapter, six times it says David worshipped before the Lord, paneum, before the face of God, six times. But when Michael critiques him, here's what she says. How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Now, she is under the impression that the audience is her and the servants. And so she's like, what are you doing? Do you see who's watching? You raise your hands because you're afraid somebody's going to, you know, nobody raised their hands here. Well, some of you do. Um, but I mean, I've been at churches, you know, they call us the frozen chosen, right? Where you don't raise your hands. And, and part of the reason we don't do it is because we're worried about how we're going to look. I know it's true because I feel it too. We all do. And David is correcting us here saying, look at his response to her is brilliant. He actually says, I was dancing before the Lord, not you. So is it possible that we can be so free of insecurities when we worship that we don't do it? I'll explain why it's not just anything goes, but that we're not concerned with what other people think that we're just worshiping. And when we do that, we then will be free to be somebody who worships rather than be confined by our decorum and our upbringing or whatever else it is. Now, um, do I go to this at the end? No, I'll, go, I'll come back to this part at the end. So, David is dancing. He is free and abandoned. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But he's dancing before it. Now, how can he do that? How can David stand and worship and dance before the ark, which is the symbol of God's holiness and of his impurity, of David's brokenness. See, it's one thing to worship the love of God. But you know that psalm, 
come and worship, the, or uh, oh, worship, it's actually the King James Version, I think is a little bit more poetic. Oh, worship the, king, uh, worship, uh, the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Remember that line? Psalm 60, 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's why I named it this. How do you worship something and find beautiful something that is only a reminder of your inadequacy? How? I mean, nobody worships the Bill of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of Canada. You may like it, you may respect it, but you don't worship before it. So how is David able to do that? And how are we able to get near? If this is the problem, right? How do we get near to God, and how do we find him beautiful knowing he just killed Uzzah? How do we do that? How do we find that God beautiful and draw near to him? The answer, I think, is the same. One thing answers them all. And the answer comes, I'm going to use Scripture to try to help understand the Scripture. Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, if you don't know the story, Isaiah, as a prophet, is heading into the temple. And when he comes into the temple, he is surprised to find God there. God is there, sitting on his throne, and it's an incredible scene, apparently. Now, in the presence of this God, his first response is terror. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he sees a cherubim, an angel, coming towards him with a coal, a hot coal. Now, fire in the Old Testament doesn't usually mean cleansing. It means destruction. So when he sees an angel coming to him with fire, he is expecting to be killed. But what is he told? Your sin has been taken away. He's expecting death, but he receives mercy. You see... Because, and then what does he say right away? He's, see what happens in this scene. He's broken down and built up in a moment. It, within seconds, he feels like he's a worm. In the presence of God, I deserve death. I deserve to be Uzzah. But then because instead of him getting what he deserves, that, justice and death, he's instead shown mercy. He then says, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want. Because he's received grace, he is now belonging to God. I'll do whatever you want. And in that line of seeing things, it turns us into people like David. Because David, much like Isaiah, understood this. David is dancing because he realizes, yes, I, do, I deserve to be Uzzah, but look at the law. Look how much God loves me. And we turn our attention to the New Testament at 1 Peter 3.18. It gives us a clearer one, because we live in this time, right? We, have this, we live on this side of the cross. And it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us, might bring us to God. So like David and Isaiah, we, when, we see, uh, when we see that we deserved Uzzah's end, but Christ died for us. But look at why he died for us. He died so that they could bring us to God. See, he brings us into the presence. Remember where the, whole, the ark would sit in the temple? It would sit in the Holy of Holies. Nobody goes there. Nobody goes into the ark to see the ark, except for the one who is allowed to. And now Christ dies for us and he takes us into it. And so much like Isaiah, much like David, David had an understanding of this, but we have a much better one. We should. We look and we see, yes, we deserve to be Uzzah. We do. But because we've received grace, we then say, send me. I'll go anywhere you want. But this doesn't turn us into being worshipers who think anything goes. Because David, although he's abandoned, worships rightly. So you worship freely, but also rightly when you're a Christian. This is, look at what David does. The whole time he's doing this procession, he's corrected, right? He's now doing the right thing. They're carrying the ark. He's sacrificing. He's doing it rightly. But he's also free within that structure to worship. 
And this means, and there's lots of them. People will say, how is that possible? How can you be free if there's laws? Come on. These musicians are not free, but they're very free in the way they play, aren't they? But they have to follow the laws of music. Otherwise, it's not music. A train is not free when it's off the tracks. It must be on the tracks to exercise its freedom and to be who it is. And so, when we come before God, we are free to worship, but we also do it rightly. And so we have to have both, you see, because if you, if you worship only freely, as some churches do, some churches are just anything goes, you, be, you run the risk of being Uzzah. God becomes common to you. But if you, run, if you go the other side and say, no, it's all propriety, it must be only hymns. In fact, no drums, no music, just voices. And I know there's denominations that do that. I worry that you're going to become Michael. And you're going to be watching from afar and you come to church as a critic instead of as a pupil. That's not the way we're to be. We're to be somehow marrying this, that it's all at once right worship, but free worship. I don't know how to do it. Okay? I don't have any, any tips. It's a difficult balance that I think we have to work through. But the only way we're ever going to get there is if we continue to look at the cross, continue to see that we deserve to be Uzzah, but instead we are deemed righteous before God because of what Christ did. And if you're a skeptic, I hope this helps clarify things. If you're not a skeptic, I hope this helps you see God in greater light. And if you're far from God, run to him. There's no salvation outside of the king. There's no salvation from the king, only within the king. There's no refuge outside, only in him. Let's pray.